everyone, and welcome to our ninth installment of our microcast series, um, the official podcast for the American Society for Microbiology, Texas Medical Center chapter. Um, in case you don't know me from the previous podcast, I'm Alex, and today we have two members of our podcast team, Allie Breuer and Bailey Kane. Um, we are all graduate students um, at the Medical Center um, here, and today we'll be talking about a very widely debated topic, global warming. Um, it's, very popular, uh, it's a very hot topic these days, I believe, with, especially with the Democratic primary debates, I think people are trying to bring issues of climate change um, more. And however, a lot of people talk about the rising sea levels, and like Florida going underwater, or the Caribbean, the Caribbean islands going underwater. But I think while those are important, we also we should also consider how rising global temperatures and um, rising sea levels can affect microbes. And since we are microbiologists, we're going to be talking about that today. So just a little bit of background, um, as many of you may already know, we have observed a substantial increase of 1.9 degrees Fahrenheit, or approximately 1 degree Celsius in global temperature in the past 50 years. In fact, 9 out of the 10 warmest years since 1880 were within the last decade. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, which are the um, experts in this matter, um, global temperatures are projected to further rise from anywhere from 2 to 9.7 degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2100, and that is a lot. And we'll we'll, we will talk about how much that actually is later on. Um, so how would this affect microbes? Well, first of all, we'll see a dramatic change in the ecosystem, especially in the aquatic ecosystem. and. Ali is going to start off on that matter. Yeah, so how the global warming is affecting the marine microecology system is very interesting. So not only are rising temperatures increasing the levels of water globally, however, they're also uh, reducing the density of water and changing the actual chemical makeup of water itself. And this can lead to uh, changes within all of the organisms that are living within the ocean, especially microbes. And microbes are really important because they actually make up 90% of all of the marine biomass of the whole ocean. Wow. And not only do they make up 90%, which mm -hmm. is substantial, they play major roles within that ecosystem themselves. So microbes can actually fix carbon and nitrogen and can remove them from the atmosphere. And so by changing the uh, microbial composition of the ocean, we can actually change the carbon and nitrogen levels, which can have drastic effects on ecosystems as a whole. So not only is the rising temperature affecting the um, ability of certain microbes to grow, thrive, survive, or die, but also the ocean is actually becoming more acidic. Mm -hmm. So currently it's been shown that the ocean um, can actually be 0.1 pH lower than it was pre-industrial times, meaning that we're actually impacting the pH of the ocean by uh, producing things. And so actually, by the end of this century, the ocean uh, is predicted to decrease by 0.3 or 0.4 also in acidification. So why is the ocean being acidified? So the ocean is being acidified because as you increase CO2 levels, that actually can make solutions more acidic. And by making the solution of the ocean more acidic, that is directly impacting microbial growth as well. So the um, increase in CO2 in the atmosphere is, is seeping into the ocean, ocean. and that's increasing um, um, that's decreasing the pH. Yes, ah. it, it, it's decreasing the pH, and this decrease in pH is going to have major effects not only on the microbes, but for every other life form within the ocean as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to go in and talk about a few examples of how um, 
ecology within the um, ocean is affected by global warming. And one of them that I think is really fascinating and interesting is phytoplankton, which to me, actually they perform half of the CO2 fixation and half of the oxygen production, despite being 1% of the global plant biomass. So when I thought about this, I just thought about, you know how ants, if they carry something, they can mm -hmm. carry like 500 times their body weight. Yeah. That's some, kind of like what the phytoplankton are doing. They're like the superstars of um, <laughs> CO2 fixation. They have an Oscar, they're like there, <laughs> they're Meryl Street. Um, so they actually have faster turnover rates than trees. So days versus decades, when you think about it, mm -hmm. and actually are exposed to less seasonal variation. So there's not like fall, winter, spring. Um, so they can also respond rapidly to climate variation. Um, but it's, however, because all these changes are happening so rapidly, it's hard to affect the climate change's effect on phytoplankton. Uh, the blooming cycles and how they're affected by bottom-up control, uh, increases in sol solar radiation, temperature and fresh water inputs um, with a mixing of brackish water. And then also, also CO2 levels can increase phytoplankton primary production, but only when nutrients are not limiting. So it might be context dependent. Um, another thing that I think is stressed often is the destruction of the coral reefs with mm -hmm, global right. warming. Um, so both ocean warming acidification are causing this decline and coral rot relies heavily actually on the associated microbiome of microalgae and bacteria for nutrients. Yeah, like I think a study said that the sediment below coral reefs have 10,000 times more bacteria than the surrounding, surrounding seawater. And I think we have a lab at Rice University close by where they do a lot of research on the um, symbiosis between microbes and coral reefs. And so if we disrupt that ecosystem, we do see a decline in healthy coral. And I think also that's something, something that's really relevant to global warming is that coral reefs have a really close relationship with the algae um, in the water. So with warmer, with warmer waters, we see an increase in invasive algae species to bloom um, that are blooming and that is disrupting the coral ecosystem. So I guess that is one way how microbes that we don't really see can affect the higher um, organisms like or systems like coral reefs or even like some of the fish we eat because like, right. everything is like you know in the food chain. So right. yeah you can think of it as like a pyramid and if the bottom are, are these bacteria and phytoplankton yeah. and other things that build upon our ability to live on this earth and you just start taking out bricks from the bottom or like playing Jenga. Exactly. So you take that out and right. then there's not a solid base for the, the rest of us. So what's happening with these things that we're doing to the ocean? So even if we don't see the microbes or how they change um, or directly by our naked eye, like a lot of things are going on there and they can have um, like a huge impact on the aquatic ecosystem and e even directly our lives. Yeah, but I think it's important to note that this is not specific to the aquatic ecosystem. Um, it goes to like um, terrestrial, um, terrestrial or right. soil right. ecosystems right as well, right? Because mm -hmm. um, like soil microbes also um, utilize CO two. Right. Um, so by changing the atmospheric CO two concentration, we are affecting um, how these microbes um, respond, right? Or or do you have to adapt? Right. No, just thinking about how there's a change in temperature. And you know we have the largest terrestrial carbon sink is actually permafrost, right. uh -huh. and warming of this has been shown. They predict just 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, which is pretty small. It's predicted to reduce permafrost by up to 53% in the future. Right. So thinking about that, all the things that have been frozen for decades, years, centuries right. is now being thawed. And what are the things that we're going to encounter in the mm -hmm. next 50 to 100 years? So it really seems as if this permafrost. Uh, 
that is melting is really going to free vast amounts of trapped carbon, which is not only going to impact microbes like we keep talking about, but everything else as well. Exactly. And ultimately, we are affecting the biodiversity of our Earth. And that is something that we want to preserve um, because it is a delicate balance that has been established for millions or even billions of years. Mm -hmm. um, and I think regarding, um, let's see, um, the per permafrost melting because of global temperatures, I mean, that can have like a drastic impact on our human health as well. Right, exactly. um, Because again, a lot of these um, microbes are trapped in the permafrost. Right. So that means we're gonna be seeing microbes like bacteria or viruses that we have never seen before. Um, and that can be quite scary, I think. Right. Even, I mean, recently we have seen that um, um, that um, pathogens like anthrax have yeah. been identified in the permafrost. And when they melted, I think, in Russia, I think yeah, it's Siberia. Yeah, the Siberian tundra. 12-year-old yeah. boy actually died um, after um, release of anthrax from permafrost, which was predicted to get um, trapped in the permafrost from an infected deer over 75 years ago. So the freezing of this deer was able to uh, allow for the bacteria to be in a dormant state. But because of global warming, when you have the increased uh, temperatures that are changing the permafrost, that actually released anthrax into the environment. I wonder if they ever found the specific reindeer. He was like patient zero. <laughs> like yeah, they, where, right. yeah, yeah. They talk about how that summer heat wave thawed and the reindeer carcass became exposed and then actually it infected other reindeer that were grazing yeah. nearby. About so 2,000 reindeer exactly. were affected. Wow. So, and it led to small human cases because mm -hmm. of the ability for this pathogen to spread through I think it was a water source and yeah, yeah, water and soil. So thinking about the food that we eat and the water that we drink, yeah. it's crazy to think about. And I think something that like our listeners will like might wonder is, okay, so these bacteria were frozen for millions of years and then like, are they still alive? What's going on there? And I think, yes, not all microbes survive when you're just frozen in the right. permafrost. But the microbes that do tend to survive are those that can make spores, right? So we're talking about anthrax that are it's like the the bioweapon um concern of yes. um this of this time right. and also clostridium like clostridium botulinum yes. that right. produces botulinum. Bo um, botox um that's really toxic clostridium tetani that makes tetanus toxin yeah, that can botox. cause tetanus <laughs> exactly or so these are like really concerning pathogens that can kill humans producing these neurotoxins and a lot of bad toxins right. and these are the ones that can survive by making these spores and what they might be coming back yeah. but it's also not just bacteria right it's also viruses right so there's actually been a giant virus that's called pithovirus severicum that has actually has a size that's large enough to be visualized under a microscope and that was also found in the siberian permafrost and the reason that this virus is so frightening is it can actually infect single cell amoebas after it's defrosted so this virus is able to be frozen for however long in ice and then after it's thawed it can then infect cells again that's significant it's really true that these diseases hidden in the ice are waking up. No, it's interesting to think. Can you imagine being a scientist, like going out and sampling the permafrost yeah. and being, what can I find? And then potentially finding something that could become a bioweapon. A like, giant that's, virus. Exactly. That's crazy. Like to think about in the wrong hands what something like that could. Yeah. Well, speaking of the ROG hands, not only are we finding these viruses and bacteria that are entering the um, ecosystem from the permafrost, but I think the DNA actually in these bacteria could have major effects on the bacteria around them. Mm -hmm. So for example, it's been found that 
DNA from bacteria that were found in 30,000 year old permafrost in the Beringian region that is between Russia and Canada actually has genes that can encode resistance to commonly used antibiotics as if antibiotic resistance already wasn't a threat in the absence <laughs> of permafrost. But these ancient microbes already have this innate resistance and they could pass it on to uh, bacteria that we encounter every day. Yeah, something also that I thought was really interesting, um, in one of my past research projects, I worked on influenza and developing a, mm -hmm. a universal influenza therapeutic. Flu is still something, it's now flu season, you should get your flu shot if you haven't already. <laughs> um, you know, it's still a common threat, not only to people who are immunocompromised, but those who are healthy, especially when the ability for the viruses um, the ability of the virus to shift and drift is still a very prominent problem. Mm -hmm. So it was amazing to me that they had found these RNA fragments from the 1918 Spanish flu wow. in Alaska's wow. tundra. Because and that was a pandemic. That was a pandemic. pandemic. Right. Wiped out. It's thought to be, thought to be ended too, right? Right, exactly. The only, I think, samples of the 1918 Spanish flu were in a BSL-4 lab. Right, for yeah. research uses For research only. only. But it's interesting to see how Alex had touched upon earlier how you know, a lot of these viruses and bacteria and other pathogens that are able to survive as permafrost is due to the ability to form spores. Uh -huh. So here that's a showing of that, that they were able to, not able to infect ferrets when cultured lung biopsies failed um, after they cultured this because probably the RNA had been so degraded right. slash it uh -huh. wasn't protected in this type of situation. And like something similar happened to smallpox as well. So I think some, I think I, there was a big BBC and um, other news source news um, that was about like how this, there's this Russian village in Siberia that where it was affected by smallpox, killing about forty percent of the population, wow. and that entire village is now just kind of frozen and along with the permafrost. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> smallpox could be coming back. I mean, so once the permafrost melts yeah. and then that releases smallpox viruses, yeah. and smallpox has been a topic has been a matter of like epidemics and pandemics for like. And it's essentially a, eradicated a long time. right now, right now. And yeah, again, like again, so far we have only found traces of DNA for the smallpox so wow. far from the permafrost. But it is only a matter of time until we find an actually an actual smallpox virus that can infect humans. Um, so far, none so far. But it's just a matter of time. So it is something that we have to keep um, looking for. Um, just try to keep um, try to be alerted about. Um, yeah. That's crazy that these ancient microbes in the ice are now becoming present day and living. So not only do we have this melting ice caps that can affect, um, that is going to affect the microbial ecosystem, but also rising temperatures in general can have an effect on pathogens as well, especially when we're talking about the pathogens that are carried in vectors like mosquitoes, right? We're yeah. in Houston, mosquitoes are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's already known that mosquitoes can carry many viruses, dengue, Zika, other pathogens. And uh, while mosquitoes, uh, of course, thrive in warmer temperatures, they actually do have a dormant period when the temperatures cool down. I believe that at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when the mosquitoes kind of shut down and go into hibernation mode. However, if we increase the temperatures above 50 degrees Fahrenheit due to global warming, we can expect to see an increase of mosquitoes. And this increased mosquitoes could also mm -hmm. lead to increases of other uh, transmittable yeah. pathogens as well. It's really interesting to think about, uh, considering where we are, we are in the United States being lower, southeastern, um, right. uh, closer to the equator than a lot of other parts of America. Um, you have, I sit in a lot for my graduate program, 
we have a translational component where we have to go and sit and listen to different grand rounds and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I go to infectious disease grand rounds for the medical center. And they often talk about, especially during the summertime, these vector-borne diseases and how they're very common actually in Houston and the surrounding area because of rising temperatures. It only continues to increase uh, throughout the years, especially dengue, Zika, they're definitely a threat. Yeah. And you'll see the signs around the medical center too, like looking yeah. for Zika, looking for other things. If you have these symptoms, beware that mm -hmm. you might have, right. you might be infected. And there has actually been rising concerns about Zika moving up towards the southern United States right. um, because of rising temperatures. Um, and in Africa, there is concerns of um, spread of malaria because yeah. of rising temperatures. Again, yeah. more study needs to be done. I think it's still rather controversial whether the actual global warming has indeed led to the increase in spread of Zika and, and malaria. Yeah. Some people say it did, some people say it didn't. But I think we just have to study more to clarify this relationship. Um, and right. that's kind of the thing with a lot of these topics as well. I mean, it's with global warming happening so slow or not really, well, slower than we um, can actually study in the lab. Um, it takes time. It takes time, exactly. Yeah. And it's hard to exactly clarify or, or elucidate the relationship between rising temperatures and disease because it, it happens at a gradual pace. Right. I think, yeah, it's hard too with just the evolution of the modern era as well. Like going from global warming, and then you also have this advanced technology. There's so much globalization of people traveling all yeah. the time as well. So yeah. it's like, how do you incorporate all these different things where in the past, epidemiologically, epidemiology might have been easier to study when things are in a bubble exactly. when they're more contained yeah, they're controlled i think that's important that you know we do experiments they're controlled but when you have something like global warming that is happening over time and then the evolution of microbes being affected by global warming over time really a lot of the research uh, in the future i think will elucidate the effects of what's happening but i think it's a hard problem to tackle because it's going to be continually changing yeah and i think Another aspect I think that's really important, kind of near and dear to our hearts, um, regarding global warming and pathogens, is climate change um, cause natural disasters. Yes. Right. Um, so that's another aspect of climate change: not only melting sea, um, melting permafrost, and increasing temperature, but the emergence, like increasing um, frequency of hurricanes. Right. Or I mean, hurricane Harvey. Yeah. Like we're from Houston. Like Hurricane Harvey in 2017, Tropical Storm Imelda this year. Yeah. And that is a topic that is very close to home and that caused flooding a massive amount of flooding and people losing their homes but I mean it's, it's not just the economic damage it's not just um, roads flooding and cars drowning it is also how these rising waters or these um, floods carry microbes they carry pathogens yeah. right so every time there's a flood the CDC releases health warnings during like during the hurricanes and after the hurricanes because standing water is a reservoir for bacteria yeah. and viruses right. um, I think the one of the major ones is Vibrio mm -hmm. right it can that's um, has is a species that can cause cholera which has been the cause of major epidemics and pandemics pandemics um throughout history and other foodborne and waterborne pathogens as well yes. right. uh, so exactly uh, Vibrio is something that's often really commonly talked about in this area, especially around uh -huh. the Galveston Bay. Yeah. Um, due to especially the brackish water and then warm water within the bay. There's often uh, public health uh, statements put out saying like to avoid getting in the water in Galveston, yeah. especially if you have an open wound. And when I was looking at different news reports, especially there was a couple this summer of, you know, normal healthy people getting into the water getting a case of bad case of embryo and either losing a limb or losing their life oh, wow. so it's very it's actually a 
problem that hits close to home being in this area less than an hour away and actually vibriosis causes up to 80,000 illnesses and 100 deaths per year from like mid October. Can we touch on that's okay can we touch on how vibrio is actually leading to these deaths so isn't it true that vibrio specifically vibrio vulnificus actually causes a disease called necrotizing fasciitis which is actually the destruction of tissues and your Uh skin and muscles so basically um, being exposed to this bacteria is causing rapid tissue decay and that can lead to death and amputation of limbs so that's Mm -hmm. a very nasty um, infection to get from being exposed to contaminated water. But even you can be exposed to contaminated water in a way that you wouldn't think, mm-hmm. considering there's so many you know food sources that we get from the ocean, yeah. self shellfish in particular, and that can also be a common carrier of vibrio. So people can get infected, especially those who are immunocompromised, yeah. through eating shellfish that have been exposed to vibrio. And I think going to more specific examples, I think um, there has been increase in flesh-eating bacteria in the Delaware Bay, Del- Delaware Bay because of rising water temperatures. Right. Um, we have also seen the increase in flesh-eating bacteria in the Baltic Sea region as well. And I think it's really important to kind of connect this back to antimicrobial resistance right. because yeah. I mean we study antibiotic resistance, how these drug-resistant pathogens are really hard to treat in the clinic. Well, Vibrio is one of those bacteria. They're also becoming drug resistant. Wow. So, I mean, it's a gram is gram negative, which means it is already somewhat prone to drug resistance. So, I mean, once you get these infections because of an open wound, because you are standing in a flood water, um, it may be hard to treat those infections in the clinic. Yeah, I think it's important that moving forward with all these changes happening with climate change and these yeah. emerging stronger pathogens or ones that we can't fight due to antimicrobial resistance, there needs to be more translational approaches with working with clinicians, epidemiologists, people who study public health, and basic science researchers to work in a team to be able to come up with solutions so where we can find good biomarkers, better therapeutics, alternative approaches to be able to treat um, this, you know, rise in resistance. Exactly. And like we have to, I mean, especially living in Houston where we do see a lot of floods happening. I mean, get, I get flash flood warnings every other two weeks during some months. <laughs> right. I mean, that means, I mean, the people in the medical center, we have to have these um, health professionals like on top of their game. I mean, in case of, if there's a flood, we need to know which microbes are at a th- are like a risk factor. We need to, we need to keep surveying um, these um, at risk pathogens because, I mean, it's too late once like it, the blood already happens, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I think, especially, it's not just these common pathogens like Vibrio that we have seen in the past. It's also some rare pathogens as well. I think, for example, um, in 2017 with Hurricane Irma and Maria, the U.S. Virgin Islands saw the first reported cases of, I'm going to butcher this, but lep- leptospirosis, which is a very rare bacterial infection. I think it happens about a thousand cases every year, which is wow. really small in wow. the United States. Um, or actually worldwide, I don't know, it's, what, it's one of those two, but it is a very, very rare bacterial infections. And those happen because of these climate disasters. So um, yeah, we've got to really kind of do more research on how climate disasters can result um, in the emergence of these pathogens. Yeah. Right. I think future research is key, especially since we do seem to be observing the emergence of new diseases, uh, possibly due to global warming, as well as old diseases in the past we thought were eradicated. It's really interesting to think about how there's two different camps of like these different science, right? It's like this very like climate change focused science, but also what we're doing. I wonder if how much bridging or gaps there are to collaborate with different people who do more earth science slash um, 
you know, climate change research versus what we're doing with antimicrobial resistance, you know, exactly. training the immune system, what other things can we do? Right. Is there a way to be able to merge those kind of broadly different fields? I think that those two disciplines can absolutely be merged, especially since we have the knowledge about the microbes and their biochemical processes, everything about them. And then the other group is going to have a lot of information on um, how climate is affected. And I think that one place where the two disciplines could really merge together is something you mentioned early, Bailey, about phytoplankton. So I think that everyone is focused on changes in oxygen levels and mm -hmm. deforestation, taking away trees is decreasing the oxygen in the atmosphere that we breathe. However, um, as Bailey mentioned earlier, phytoplankton, which are marine microbes, are actually responsible for uh, producing a lot of oxygen. And so understanding how these microbes are mm -hmm. able to uh, be affected by climate change and their contribution to oxygen is gonna really be beneficial in the future. And I think that's a really good way to kind of bring this all together and kind of really close this um, segment is research. Um, yeah. We need to learn more. We need to learn mo more about the, mar um, the marine and terrestrial um, microbial ecology. We need to know more about pathogens, emerging pathogens, new and old. We need to learn so basically we need to learn more about how global warming, whether it's rising sea levels, melting permafrost, or climate disasters can all kind of lead to um, changes in the ecosystem and possible risk to human health. And so, yeah, we need more money. Uh, we need more, as Bailey said, interdisciplinary com um, collaborations. So yeah, I think I'm really excited to see yeah. how like we can all work together to solve this crisis. Right. When we were talking all together before, I think one thing that's really you had brought up, Alex, is that there's really a lot unknown. There's a big question mark with what's going to happen in the future because there's so many things you don't know. What's going to come out of the permafrost? What yeah. you know, resistances are going to develop? Will there be potential benefits? Questionable? Not sure. I know we do have a lot of things to tackle like in our future, so that's something that we all need to work together and also communicate to people who are not in the sciences how it's important to believe that this warming is happening okay. and take moves to be able to try to prevent it as much as possible. Yeah, I think um, that is a great way to end this podcast today. Um, thank you all for listening, and we'll hope to see you next time.